Mark 14. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles. I lost my voice right after second service on Sunday. Lo and behold, I left it here. I'm going to do my best to, to get through the chapter speaking. I may have to speak softly at times, so just... Listen in, there are some seats closer if, if that helps you hear. John has me cranked up back there. So uh, The nice thing is, of all the chapters in Mark, this is the longest one. So I'm... <laughs> Let me pray one more time. Holy Father, blessed Jesus, give me voice to your words tonight. Simply enough voice to speak what you have before us. And as Les already prayed, give us revelation in our hearts to what you would teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this is the longest chapter in Mark and perhaps the longest night of Jesus' earthly life. It begins in Bethany and it will end in betrayal. So we go from Bethany to betrayal. I'm going to give you nine uh, vistas along the way, nine points of view, points of interest, if you will. And we covered the first point already. We covered it on Sunday, verses 3 through 9. We'll just call it the perfume. Okay, so point number one, if you want to keep a list of these, the first one is the perfume. And you know the story already. If you're here Sunday, it's the story of Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. And how Mary anointed Jesus with that costly, pure nard, that perfume in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. But you may recall from Sunday that the first two verses start us off with a little discrepancy, a little controversy, and I promise to clear it up. So let's look at those. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Well, the discrepancy is that John, in John chapter 12, tells us this happened not two, but six days before the Passover. So who's right? Is it Mark or is it John? And if one is right and one is wrong, then we have a biblical problem, don't we? Because we consider and believe the Scriptures to be inspired. So how do we reconcile this? John chapter 12, verse 1 says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. I think that John is giving us the accurate, the accurate chronological view. And Mark is not. Mark is doing something different. It's not a contradiction. But the first thing you need to understand and remember is that the chapters and verses were added to the Bible later, after the fact. Chapters were added by a man named Langton in 1227 A.D. The verses beyond that were added in in 1551 by another guy named Stephanus. And while the verses and chapters are helpful to us in studying and searching through the Scriptures, sometimes they can get in the way. And this is one of those times... I think verses 1 and 2 of chapter uh, 14 belong with chapter 13. And if you read it that way, it makes some sense. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Chapter 13, verse 37. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. 
When's he talking about? When Jesus finished the Olivet Discourse. When he finished that discourse, Passover was two days away. But then Mark goes on to tell the story that happened in Bethany. And he does it, again, for a reason. To give insight into the betrayal that is going to characterize this next section of his teaching, of his, of his account. John points to the moment of the betrayal. <clears throat> that is when the betrayal began. When was that? Six days before Passover. Judas was already planning the betrayal, thinking the thoughts of the betrayer the entire last week. Perhaps some before that, but we know that it entered into his heart. The idea of betraying Jesus. He finally made up his mind. The crime of Judas was not a crime of passion. It was thought out. You could call it premeditated murder. Because Judas thought it through. It had been seething beneath the surface all week long for six days, as John tells us. And so John points that out. This was the moment when it began. Six days before Passover. Matthew and Mark, both in saying that it was two days, they're dealing with the motive of the betrayal, not the moment, the motive. That is why it all began. And we see that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14. That Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. What had happened? Verses 3-9, through the story of the perfume. Mary anointed the Lord with that costly perfume. And Jesus justifies it. Jesus says, it's a good thing that she's done. She has anointed me for my burial. And again, we talked through that on Sunday. But for Judas, it was an absolute waste. Mark puts the story here, though it happened six days before, four days earlier actually, But six days before Passover, Mark puts it here because he's talking about when this whole issue, this attitude of betrayal, began for Judas. The motive of it. Judas saw dollar signs. In fact, he saw dollar signs in Jesus' ministry from the beginning. This is a guy who's going places. This is a guy who should be able to fill coliseums. Man, we can make some serious dough. Judas kept the money box, John tells us. Judas used to pilfer out of the money box, John tells us in John chapter 12. And so he saw dollar signs in his eyes. And when Mary pours out this perfume and Jesus says, yeah, this is right, this is good, Judas says, I'm done. I've had it. Later that same night, Jesus will sadly refer to Judas as the son of waste, John 17, 12. Here's the thing. What Judas misunderstood... God's economy is completely different than our economy. God does not think in terms of dollar signs. We so often do. And I'm not even saying sinfully. But we have to consider our budgets, right? We have to look at how we're going to afford what we're doing. We have to prepare for things like Christmas or vacations. We have to look at the money coming in and the money going out and try to handle it wisely as good stewards. God doesn't concern Himself with dollar signs. I guess when you have everything, you don't have to. (laughs) And He is the Creator who owns everything and who gives liberally to all of His people that they might give liberally themselves. 
We need to learn to think in terms of God's economy. That's why I was so serious on Sunday when I talked about money and business and the ways that we make money. And please hear me on this. And I repeat what I said Sunday. I was not trying to get on anyone's case. That's not my job. My job as a pastor is not to follow any individual believer around and tell you how to live your life. My job as a pastor, however, is to point out what the Word tells us. My job as a pastor is to, when I see something that might be a red flag or a concern of any kind, to raise the issue honestly and say, what does the Lord tell us about this? How does God want us to live our lives? I repeat to you the verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I confess to you all, man, the lust of the flesh has been my problem. And the lust of the eyes I have dealt with. And the boastful pride of life. All these things, hey, these are issues for Rick. And if they're issues for me, I'm going to make the assumption that they're issues for all of us. And John says, don't think that way. Don't live that way. That's of the world. That is not of the Father. Let me ask you, do you want to be of the Father? And if you do, then we've got to go to the Lord with every decision, be it home finances, be it how we do business, be it how we interact in the world, we begin with what the Father says. How do I know if I, like Judas, how do I know if I'm in love with the world? What's, what's the measure? Well, let me ask you another question. Why didn't the leaders want to kill Jesus during the Passover feast? Look back at verse 2. They were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. That's interesting to me. The Jewish leaders weren't afraid of God. They didn't fear Him. They feared the people. They didn't fear that they were about to put an innocent man to death. They didn't consider the possibility that this could in fact be Messiah, and if He is, we're killing the Son of God. They weren't concerned about that. They weren't afraid of that. They were afraid of people. And you know you love the world when the fear of man is greater than the fear of God. Keep that in mind. It's a good test. Isaiah 33.5 says, The Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And He, listen to this, especially in our economy right now, He will be the stability of your times. I love that. A wealth of salvation and wisdom and knowledge and the fear of the Lord is His treasure. The fear of the Lord. That's something you can bank on. So leaving point number one, the perfume, we go to the next lookout here, which is the preparation. The preparation, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. 
Well, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as He had told them, and they prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, He came with the twelve. A couple of things to note here. Interesting how Jesus does this. The instructions He gives to these two disciples. Understand, first of all, that Middle Eastern culture is clear on this point. Carrying pitchers of water was women's work. It was not men's work. It would be unusual, no offense ladies, just the way it was. They knew their roles, and the women would carry pitchers of water. If you saw someone carrying a pitcher of water, typically it was a woman. Because a man didn't carry pitchers of water around. He wasn't a water carrier, unless he was carrying it to water his flocks and herds, in which case he carried it in skins. Men would carry large water skins. Women would carry the water pitchers, either on shoulder or on their head. So right off the bat, this would be an unusual sight that would catch these two disciples' attention. Oh, there goes a guy with a water pitcher. That must be the guy. So it was an uncommon thing that Jesus gave them as a sign. Secondly, this water carrier was one step removed from the owner of the house. He was not the owner. He was a servant of the owner of the house that had the upper room. So... There was a a, a step removal there which gave a sense of, I don't know, secrecy. It was a little surreptitious here what Jesus is telling. Watch for this guy. He's going to lead you to another guy. And that guy is going to be the guy that you talk to. Jesus had obviously met the owner of the house who had the upper room beforehand and made the preparations. So he knew what he was doing. And now he sends the two disciples. These two disciples, by the way, were Peter and John. Luke 22, verse 8 tells us that. And he gives them these James Bondish instructions. You know? These kind of secretive, strange instructions. And I'm pointing that out because Peter and John showed great faith here. Kind of like the two disciples that Jesus would send or sent earlier to go get the donkey. The donkey's colt and bring it to him for the triumphal entry. Strange instructions. And yet what we don't see in this passage or the prior passage is them questioning the Lord. What's this about? Guy with a water pitcher leads us to another. What's up with this, Lord? They show great faith. Faith to secure a room for a meal. They show great faith because they simply did two things. And here it characterizes faith. They believed Jesus and they did what He said. And faith truly is that simple. Believe Jesus Do what He says. And people ask, how do I become a man, a woman of faith? Believe Jesus and do what He says. Don't I have to go to Bible college? No. Well, don't I have to have some kind of special ordination? No. Believe Jesus. Do what He says. Remember, again, the two disciples who procured the donkey's colt a few days before. Same thing. Faith. They believed Jesus. They did what He says. And sometimes... His instructions to you might seem a little strange. Might be the middle of worship. And He taps you on the shoulder and says, go pray for less. Pray for less? He's supposed to pray for me. That's His job. You know, That's a little weird, Lord. Believe Jesus. Do what He says. See, I got an amen from less. <laughs> James says in James 2.26, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And that's kind of the whole idea. Why all the clandestine secrecy? 
Because Jesus knew betrayal was at foot. Jesus knew what was going on. He needed to be able to get to the upper room secretly, quietly. It was important to Him. And so He asked Peter and John to take on this task. They believed Him and they did it. And faith without works is dead. If they said, oh yeah, we believe You, Lord. But then they sat there. Well, they didn't believe Him. If they went into the city and, and said, that was just too weird. Let's get our own place. They didn't believe Him. But they did what He said. Very simple. That's faith. Now, Jesus wanted to be sure His arrest didn't come before He shared the Passover with His apostles. You need to understand that. Jesus was absolutely in control of this whole thing. He was absolutely in authority. He knew what He was doing. It held great importance for Him and for us for Him to share this Passover and not be crucified too soon. So He was very methodical in what He did. Well, doesn't that take away from all the prophecy? Not at all. He knew the prophecy, and He was fulfilling prophecy obviously that He knew. He also fulfilled prophecy that He couldn't possibly have fulfilled Himself. You know, like where He was born. And uh, how many pieces of silver Judas would be given for the betrayal. Prophecies like these, but there were other things Jesus obviously knew. And He was working to fulfill Scripture. To fulfill what had been said. Why? Well, because He said it. He's the one, His Spirit gave the prophecies to the prophets. We've talked about this. The Spirit of Christ gave the prophecies to the prophets who talk about the Christ. And now the Christ is fulfilling what the Christ told the prophets to prophesy about the Christ. Are you with me? But it's marvelous. And Jesus said in Luke 22.15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm making sure I've got this time with my men. It's time they need. It's time we need. Thank Jesus He did this. He says in Luke 22.16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Ironically, the chief priest did not want to kill Jesus during the feast at all. Remember verse 2. They didn't want to do it during the feast, but they did it during the feast. Well, why is that? Because they were not in control. (laughs) Jesus was. And He made sure it happened exactly when it needed to happen. He orchestrated His crucifixion to land on Passover. Wow. Both personally and prophetically, everything had to happen according to the preordained plans of Jesus. Now, by the way, I'm not talking predestination here. And I'm not saying that man doesn't have free will. We do have free will. But as we watch Jesus walking through these last few days of His life, we see very much that it exalts His sovereignty. That He is in charge. John even goes further than Mark to explain that through the whole Gospel. How Jesus is in charge every step of the way, even to the giving up of His Spirit, when He was ready, when He recognized everything was finished. So He absolutely has the authority. Judas had the will. Uh, Peter, John, they had the free will. The apostles had the freedom to do, to stay, to flee, to do what they were going to do. But Jesus had the authority. Number three, the posture. Preparations having taken place, we come to the posture. Verse 18, as they were reclining at the table and eating, now hold it right there, a careful student of the Torah 
might ask, doesn't this violate the law? They were reclining at the table. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11 says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Translation, eat it standing up. Eat it with the door open. Eat it ready to go. Eat it standing at full alert. So why were they reclining? I mean, they're, they're not just sitting down with the staff at hand ready to go. They're laying down by the table. This was... Uh, well, I'll tell you what it was in just a minute. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Why were they reclining? Why were they leaning back? And they were in pillows around this table. Because Jews, from the moment they actually came into the Promised Land, believed that they no longer had to stand up for Passover. They no longer had to eat Passover in haste. What was a hasty meal the first Passover became an evening of enjoyment and remembrance in later Passovers when the Jews came into the land. Because once in the land, they were now at rest. Though they were physically at rest in the promised land, they were not spiritually at rest with the Lord. Not yet. Hebrews 4 verse 8 tells us if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Only in Jesus do we find our true rest. Only in Jesus is the posture that we see them in, the posture of reclining, legitimate. I'm not saying it wasn't legitimate or that they were doing anything wrong, but the posture is interesting to me. They're reclining at the table. This brings me to number four out of nine. The plotter. The plotter. Now, if Judas had been a hairy man, he would be the hairy plotter. Verse 18. As, As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. You can hear it going around the table, not I, Lord, not I. Surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And this was one of the most shocking statements the Twelve had ever heard Jesus make. I am going to die as I have told you. Woe to the one of you who causes this to happen. Here's another shocker for you. Leonardo da Vinci was not at the Last Supper. No, it's true. They weren't all seated at a long table. They weren't all posing for a Passover portrait. You know, John, move in. Peter, stop making funny faces. Come on, let's, you know. They reclined on what's called a triclinium which is a three-sided table. This was typical in the day. It was a low table. They would have pillows all the way around it. You'd have anywhere from three to five people on either side of these three sides of the triclinium. You leaned on your left 
you ate using your right hand. And so you would dip in the bread or, or drink the wine with the right as you're leaning over on the left. We know because of this that John was to Jesus' right. Because John 13.23 tells us that he reclined into Jesus. He leaned his head up against Jesus' chest. That's because he was leaning in this direction toward Jesus. Leaning against Jesus. What that also means is the place of honor is to Jesus' left. Jesus is the master of this certain Passover. And so the place of honor is to Jesus' left. John 13, 24, Simon Peter gestured to John and said to him, Tell it, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, It is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Picture this. Here's John. Here's Jesus. Jesus dips the morsel and, and gives it to the person right next to him. Judas is seated in the place of honor at the last Passover. Judas is the one right there. Consider the place of the best friend of the one at Passover. I mean, I can just imagine the other apostles looking at Judas and going, wow, he got the spot. That's pretty cool. Now, they had shared Passovers before. Perhaps Jesus had moved them around at different times. But at this last supper, Judas is in the seat of honor. And even as Jesus hands him the morsel, no one would have suspected that he was the betrayer. He's in the seat of honor, man. Besides, they had all been dipping and passing around and perhaps they're thinking, well, did he pass me a morsel a few minutes ago? I don't remember. And like us, the apostles that night, and I'm projecting a little bit here, but I imagine they were all so focused on themselves that they couldn't imagine somebody else. Could it be me? Did I do this? Am I, have I betrayed him? Somehow? We, we get so self-centered that way. But they had no idea it was Judas. Jesus leans back, dips, hands it to Judas. Was he singling Judas out in this action? And the answer is no. Jesus was offering Judas a way out. Not singling him out, you're the betrayer, you're the guy, but offering him a chance, an opportunity. When you dip the morsel and handed it, you're handing it and saying, you're my friend. It was a sign of love and affection to a close friend. And it's as if Jesus was saying, and I've told you this before, looking at Judas and saying, will you be my friend here? You have a choice to make here. The die is not cast. Are you my friend? Up to the very last moment, and Judas wouldn't take it. Oh, he took the morsel. Can you imagine knowing that you're the betrayer, hearing Jesus tell all of the disciples right there in that room, one of you will betray me, and still being able to keep a poker face? That takes a hard heart, gang. And by then, Judas' heart was very hard. Some have questioned the fairness of Judas being chosen to be the betrayer. That just can't be right. You know, that God would pick one man out of all history to betray His Son. That Judas, Jesus would then turn around and choose Judas to be one of the twelve, knowing He was going to betray Him. Setting Him up. Singling Him out for the treachery. And then Jesus makes the comment that it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Well, then why let him be born at all, Lord? Why would you set him up in this way? And I think back to the Hebrew Scriptures. How is it fair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? You know that story. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so he would not let the people go. 
Of course, if you read that story through, you find out the first seven times Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he hardened his own heart. It was the next seven times that God hardened his heart. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, like Pharaoh, Judas had every opportunity to reject the betrayal. Every opportunity. Instead, he chose it. One commentator put it this way, God used a willing Satan who used a willing Judas to betray Jesus. And so there's choice going on here. Judas was not forced to do what he did. He chose to do what he did, and Jesus gave him every opportunity not to. Which, by the way, tells us that Jesus loved Judas as much as He loved Mary who had just anointed Him a few days before. The passion Jesus had for Mary, sister to Martha and and Lazarus. No different than the passion, the love He had for Judas. And it's real easy to think that He loved the one and despised the other. He loved Mary. What a passionate, wonderful follower. There, always resting at His feet. What a sweet woman. And Judas pilfering out of the money box, ripping me off. I'm going to get him. He's going to be the betrayer. That's not how it was. Isaiah 30 verse 18 tells us the Lord, listen, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. See, that's the heart of God. He longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, He waits on high to have compassion for you. What's He waiting for? For you to say, I want you, Lord. I accept You, Lord. I believe You, Lord. For the Lord is a God of justice. And Isaiah said, How blessed are all those who long for Him. He longs for you, and He waits for you to long for Him. And the difference between Judas and Mary was not the amount of love Jesus had for them. It was the amount of longing in their hearts for Him. In Mary's case... Her heart overflowed with longing, outpoured longing, even as she poured that perfume out on Jesus. In Judas' case, the only thing he was longing for was what Jesus could get for him. And when he realized it was over, it was done, there was no more getting, we're at the end of the line here, Judas figures, well, at least I can get 30 pieces of silver out of the deal. Well, John tells us at this point, right here after verse 21 in Mark, at this point... Judas leaves. In fact, John says he left them and it was night. John uses the the symbolism very powerfully that it was dark. That that was the time of darkness when Judas finally leaves and heads out. And suddenly at this point, Jesus changes the entire observance of the Passover. Verse 22, While they were eating, He took some bread. And after a blessing, He broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. By the way, Here's this this Passover meal and Jesus changes the direction. He changes the trajectory of it completely. But why is it that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of the four mention a Passover lamb as part of the meal? They mention the bread, they mention the wine, they don't talk about the lamb at all. Some commentators believe it's because they couldn't get an official lamb until the next day. 
But the next day is obviously Passover, so they couldn't get the lamb on that day, and, and therefore they didn't have a lamb at this particular meal, so they just made do with what they had. And I ask you, does Jesus ever just make do? <laughs> and Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Right? And to fulfill the law perfectly meant He would have to go all the way back and, and do Passover right. In fact, look back at verse 12 again. And note this. It's important. It's another little discrepancy to clear up perhaps for some. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. That raises a question. What day was this? This We often think of it as Thursday night. What day was this? When they celebrated Passover, Jesus with the apostles. What's going on here? Was it Passover? Or was it the first day of unleavened bread? Well, is there a difference? Absolutely there's a difference. Leviticus 23, verse 5. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan. I've shared before, the Jews had two ways of looking at the calendar. They had the social calendar or the civic calendar. Okay, that began uh, at the first of the year right, right at, at Tishri, they also had what was called the religious calendar, which began with Nisan. Not the car, the month. <laughs> began with the month of Nisan, and so God said, this will be the first month for you in, for religious, for ceremonial reasons. Okay, So in the first month, Leviticus 23, verse 5, that's the month of Nisan, God says, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then, on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. And that continues on for seven days. So you have Passover first as one feast. And then the next day, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that continues for seven days. And so there's obviously a discrepancy because John or Mark says... John Mark says on the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. So we look at that and say, what's going on here? Well, the answer is a cultural answer and a very simple one. Because of the immediacy of these two feasts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews often referred to them as one. They often would say the Feast of Unleavened Bread beginning with Passover. They would start it with Passover and then continue on with unleavened bread the next day. And notice that Mark qualifies it. He says on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover was, the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. So he clarifies it for us. You know, culturally, the whole thing was often considered as feast of unleavened bread, but specifically, this day was the day of Passover. Also remember this. The Jewish 24-hour day runs from sunset to sunset, not sunup to sunup. So they gather for the Passover meal at sunset. Passover lasted all the way till the next sunset. Which means that Jesus shared the Passover meal and was the Passover lamb on the same Passover. He was able to do both. Which is remarkable. It also answers the question we asked a few moments ago. And that is, why don't Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John mention the Passover lamb at the feast? Because the Passover lamb was at the feast, Jesus. He is the Passover lamb. And He makes the whole thing about Him. He's at the feast by 9 o'clock the next morning. He is on the cross, Christ our Passover, as Paul calls Him. 
So number five in your notes, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. Verse 22, go back to it. While they were eating, He took some bread. After a blessing, He broke it. He gave it to them. And He said, take it. This is My body. And this is where Passover took that unexpected turn. The master of the feast typically would lift up the bread and break it and traditionally spoke these words. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And then he would pass out the bread. Jesus took the bread, broke it, lifted it up and said, This is my body. But what? What did he say? He said that was his body. And Jesus begins to pass it around. And immediately the apostles know something's different. This is not the traditional Passover. Jesus is changing things up again. So you know He had their attention. Verses 23 and 24, He takes the cup. Probably the fourth cup of the Passover meal, which was known as the cup of redemption. And He said, this is My blood of the covenant. They're still eating what represents His body as He begins to pass around His blood. Drink this, He says. This is My blood of the covenant. What covenant, Lord? 1 Corinthians 11.25, Paul says he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of Me. Hebrews 12.24 tells us, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel cries out for justice, but the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. It's a better blood. And we're told in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The new covenant. This is it, Jesus says. This is my blood of the covenant. Finally, He said in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This bread, my body. This wine, my blood. And the purpose of the whole feast suddenly gets transformed. It's no longer a remembrance of the past. Now, from here on out, it is a remembrance to the future. Remembering what Jesus did. This is why I've been asked, why do we take communion together every Sunday at the bridge? Why do we take it once a week? And the first thing I answer is, well, we don't. We often will take it more often than that. We at least take it every first day of the week. But we encourage each other in small groups and homes and other times, opportunities, Christmas Eve. We encourage each other, let's take communion together. Why? As often as you do, you remember Christ's death until He comes. You proclaim His death. It's a remembrance of proclamation. It's a remembrance that brings us to what is coming to the future. 1 Corinthians 11.26 Again, as often as you drink this cup, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. So Jesus changes the whole thing here. Remarkably, wonderfully, beautifully. And we're told in verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
which is a great verse. You don't often think about Jesus singing. But they sang together. Those twelve men, eleven and Jesus. Judas was not there. They sang together. What hymn? What hymn were they singing? Well, traditionally, if you're putting on your thinking yarmulke, the Passover meal included several hymns, several songs from the same location in the Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're called the Great Hallel. We studied through these a few years back now. Contained within Psalm 118, the last song of the Great Hallel, which would have been the last song of Passover. So Jesus and the Apostles, verse 26, the hymn they sang, I can't say absolutely for sure, but I'm pretty pretty darn tootin' sure. But the hymn they sang was Psalm 118. And so you might, even tonight, maybe before you go to bed, go back and read Psalm 18. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and think through Jesus and the apostles singing this, but contained in the middle of that psalm are these words, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus would sing these words, depart from the upper room, cross the Cadrone, go into Gethsemane, where he would be arrested, where the chief cornerstone would be rejected. Amazing. I'm going to give you the next three in a row here. Okay, so number six, seven, and eight. The panic, the promises, and the prayer. Alright? Those are the next three in our in our list. The panic, the promises, and the prayer. Have I been clear about the other ones so far? Should have five so far, I think. The last one was the Passover lamb. Verse 27. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13, verse 7. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Though all may fall away, yet I will not. You ever said that to Jesus? (laughs) I'll stand with you, Lord. I'll be true, Father. I'll be faithful. And we all understand a little bit of what Peter was saying. We want to. We desire to. We we truly mean it. It's not that we're lying to the Lord when we say, yeah, I'll stand with you. It's just when it gets a little heated. It's harder than we thought it was going to be. But Peter blurts this out as he so often does. I'll stand up with you, Lord. Verse 30, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. So it wasn't just Peter, it was all the apostles. No, 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 we're with you, Lord. We got your back. We'll stand with you. We promise. The panic, the promises, and the prayer. You know, Jesus says... You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. There shouldn't have been a rooster in Jerusalem. No, I'm serious. There really shouldn't have been. Not for Passover. They should have been cleared out. Roosters are unclean birds. And it would have been unusual for a rooster to be there, but Jesus lets Peter and the guys know that for all their proud crowing, they're going to deny Him. 
They're going to flee. They're going to run away. Panic would ensue. But at the same time, He lets them know this. He gives them fair warning. He also gives them two great promises. Look at verse 28. Two promises. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. After I have been raised, He says, He promises His resurrection. I'm going to be raised. (coughs) Excuse me. He assumes that. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew what was happening. He knew His death was imminent. He knew His resurrection would follow. That's promise number one. And promise number two is He says, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. How's that a promise? It's a promise of forgiveness. promise of restoration. You're going to fall away. But after I'm raised, I'll meet you in the Galilee. What? See, the way we would say something like that is you're all going to fall away and I will never let you forget it. (laughs) You're going to fall away, but I will meet up with you guys. You're going to deny me, but I will not deny you. Hallelujah is right. I will not deny you. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Which is even greater. It's not that He won't deny me because I'm such a good guy and He doesn't want to deny me because boy, if I deny Rick, then I lose that opportunity to be with Rick. No. He can't deny me. Why? Because He can't deny Himself. And if He promises faithfulness, He has to follow through because that's His character. That's His nature. And so the promise is not even based on you or me. The promise is based on Him. And there are plenty of times in my life when I have freaked out rather than faithfully followed. I'm so thankful that my salvation depends on Him and not me. See, we panic. Jesus prays. We panic. He prays. He foresees their panic. He offers His promises. And then He prays. Verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. Oh, by the way, I'm going to say this before I forget it. How many times did Jesus say Peter would deny Him? Three times. How many times are we going to see Jesus go away and pray in the garden? Three times. Remember that. They came to a place named Gethsemane or Gatshimon in the Hebrew, or Gat Shimonim, which would be the plural form. In other words, the place of the olive presses. Because in Gethsemane, there wouldn't have been just one olive press. It's a huge, huge olive grove, especially in that time. And there would have been multiple olive presses for pressing out that oil. To the place of the olive presses, Gethsemane, Gat Shimon, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And this is prayer number one. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And this is the first prayer. Understand how distressed he was, how grieved he was. He says, to the point of death. This is not to the point of the death on the cross. 
You need to understand that in this moment, in the garden, Jesus was so distressed, He was that close to dying right then. In fact, Luke tells us something happened right then. You Bible students might remember, it's called hematidrosis. Luke says in Luke 22.44, being in agony and praying fervently, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when someone gets this stressed, this pressed, this overwhelmed as Jesus was, the capillaries expand and burst and the blood flows out of the sweat glands. And when this happens, medically, gang, typically the person dies. The stress is too great. Jesus should have died in the garden. Prayer number one. Jesus was being pressed. In the place of the olive press. Got Shimon. Jesus was being pressed. The pressure was greater on Him in this moment than in any other time in His life. Luke uses the word agonia. Being in agony and praying fervently. The word agonia in the Greek means severe anguish. But it also means a victory struggle. That same Greek word, agonia, is used to describe a runner who in all of his energy, in the last ounces, breaks the tape after the marathon, gets across the line, and wins the victory. Agonia. Jesus both being pressed to the point of death, but also to the point of absolute victory. Because as He prayed, listen again to what He says, Abba, Father. I love that, Abba. You hear little children crying out Abba in the streets of Jerusalem today. Daddy, Abba. And Jesus here in this great stress, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will, victory. Jesus has just in that moment become victorious, accepting the will of God, the will of the Father, over the will of the flesh. And remember, Jesus was flesh as much as He was God. But He subverted the flesh and victoriously received the will of God. And He came and He found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He came the third time. Okay, so he went away to pray three times. And he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. I don't know if Jesus went, That was my addition. <laughs> Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Did you catch what Jesus called Peter in verse 37? Simon. That's interesting. Why not Peter? He'd been calling him Peter all along. He changed his name to Peter up at Caesarea Philippi. You are now Peter Rock. Little Rocky. And he calls him Peter affectionately and truly all the way down. But now suddenly on this night he comes back, finds Peter asleep, and he says, Simon. Simon. (laughs) Shimon. 
in the Hebrew. Some have, have tried to say that it means shifting sand. I can't find that anywhere. I've looked all over the place. Because that would be great, wouldn't it? You know, Simon means shifting sand, Peter means rock. What a great contrast, Lord. But that's not what it means. Shimon comes from the Hebrew root word Shema. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And I think this is even better because Peter says, Simon, Simon, you're asleep. How can you pay attention? How can you hear when you're sound asleep? You see, gang, prayer is not talking. The best prayer is listening. The best prayer is the prayer when we listen for the Father's answer. When we ask Him for His direction, for His insight, for His wisdom. Prayer is listening. It's what, we, it's what we're learning in our faith walk. How to listen to God rather than to talk at Him. But if you're sound asleep, you can't listen. You can't hear, O Israel. You can't, Shimon, hear a thing. Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to keep watch, literally to pay attention. Stay on the alert. Listen up. But old Simon, the old man, was snoozing away, too tired to pray or to listen attentively. Why should I pray? Listen. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus prays three times. Peter slept all three times. When Jesus was done praying, He had the strength He needed to face the whole rest of the night. When Peter was done sleeping, He had just enough strength to run away. To flee. Because the strength is not found in sleep. The strength is found in the prayer. You're going to deny Me three times. And He had three opportunities to pray and to keep watch. And rather than do that, the three denials would in fact take place. Because Peter hadn't been in the place of prayer. Why should I pray? Because prayer removes panic. How often when you're panicking over a situation in your life, have you paused to pray and found yourself able to think clearly again? Prayer removes panic. It brings peace. It brings the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life. And prayer always, prayer always, Prayer always produces preparation. It always readies us for things we can't even see, can't even fathom, can't even know are going to come. Peter and the boys, for all the warning, still didn't know what was imminent. Jesus did. Jesus was prepared. Jesus was now ready for the rest of the night ahead. Verse 43. Immediately while He was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. By the way, the chief priests had their own police force. So that's who they sent. All right, Roman guards would accompany them according to the other Gospel writers. But Mark tells us very clearly and very truly those who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders with clubs and swords. Now, He who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi! And kissed him. They laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck off 
then struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 51, that Jesus immediately picks up the ear and heals him. John tells us in John 18.10 that it was Peter who did the whopping. (laughs) You know, I've got to read into the relationship between Peter and John. It must have been kind of fun. Because in the Gospel of John, not only is it John who points... See, Peter Peter doesn't point it out. Remember, Mark is probably written based on the sermons of Peter preached in Rome. Peter doesn't mention he's the one who cut off the ear. He just says, yeah, and one of the guys cut off an ear. (laughs) You know, Peter doesn't say it. John does. Oh, no, no, it's Peter. Let's make no mistake about it. John also tells us that when they ran to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday, he beat Peter there. I love the relationship these two have. So Jesus heals the ear. Peter did the cutting off. Gang, this is the last miracle of Jesus before the crucifixion. And in this last miracle, He didn't just heal the servant's ear, He saved Peter's life. Had Jesus not done this, Barclay says there would have been four crosses at Calvary. Jesus saves him. Just in time for Peter and the rest of the guys to flee for their lives. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. This is not your doing, Jesus says. This is my doing. They all left Him and fled. A young man was following Him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized Him, and He pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. The early church fathers wrote that this young streaker (laughs) was John Mark, the writer of this Gospel. It's a very personal account, and Mark's is the only Gospel that shares this story of this young man. So it's very likely it, it was in fact John Mark. In fact, what they believe happened, John Mark's mother, whose name was Mary, had a home in Jerusalem, a, a good-sized home, because they held meetings there in the early church. Book of Acts tell us. John was probably in bed asleep or falling asleep and heard the commotion of the chief priests having sent their, their men with clubs and swords going down the street. Maybe some have, have posited that, that they stopped at the house of John Mark. Asked his mother, is Jesus here? And then they went out, and so Mark, out of curiosity, jumps out of bed, wraps himself with probably like a robe of some kind or, or a linen sheet of some kind, wraps himself and is following them to see what's going to happen, ends up in the garden, and ends up in the midst of the fray. And they grab hold of the sheet, and he hightails it out of there. Lowtails it, whatever. He gets out of there <laughs> as fast as he can, and we see this very personal account in the Gospel of Mark. So to this point, the perfume, the preparation, the posture, the plotter, Passover lamb, the panic, the promises, the prayer, ninth and final one, the prosecution. Verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. This is a place we're pretty sure. It's the house of Caiaphas. 
If you've traveled to Jerusalem with us, you've seen Caiaphas' house. As you can imagine, Peter's there in the courtyard just outside. He's watching. He's looking in to see what's going on. He's warming himself at the fire. By the way, be careful of warming yourself at the fires of the enemy. Peter's there. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against Him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Of course, you know He was talking about His body. In fact, he was talking about exactly what they were preparing to do to him, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus. Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Why didn't Jesus give an answer? Because the testimony was bogus. His false testimony. Take the lead from Jesus. When someone is spreading lies about you, don't answer. But, but what if it messes up my reputation? Don't worry about it. If they're lies, the truth will out. Let God be your shield. If someone is saying things about you that are abjectly untrue, false testimony, not fair, not right, you don't have to worry about it. All you need to do is stand behind your shield who is the Lord. Trust Him and trust Him to bring the truth to light. And it may take time. I've had situations in my life where it took time. But just stand back behind the Lord. Let Him go before. Don't open your mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 7 prophesied this moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Yeah, like a lamb, the Passover lamb. Christ our Passover. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And Peter would remember that. Remembering the prophecy of Isaiah. Remembering, watching Jesus there. Not saying a word. If I was Peter, I would have been thinking, why don't you say something, Lord? Defend yourself. This isn't true what they're saying. Of course, Peter didn't open his mouth either. But later Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And remember the hymn I told you that they probably sang. Psalm 118. You realize that Psalm 118 has the middle verse of the entire Bible in it? Psalm 118 verse 8 They would have sung that very night, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And so Jesus was, taking refuge in His Father. And for all the vicious attacks going on here, all the claims of the false witnesses, understand this is always the way it is with man. Inconsistent, erratic, contradictory. When people attack the Bible... Their attacks are inconsistent, erratic, and contradictory. People will even say the Scriptures are contradictory, and yet their own false witness is contradictory. We don't have to stand up and defend the Scriptures. 
We don't have to stand up and point out where everybody is wrong and, and fight those fights because their own witness is inconsistent. We need to remember what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to defend the truth. I just need to know Him. And if I know the truth, what did Jesus say? The truth will set you free. Amen. Verse 61, continuing, And again the high priest was questioning Him and saying to Him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, I am. Not a phrase typically spoken by the Jewish people because it was too close, even in the Greek, it was too close to the Hebrew, the Greek, ego eimi, the Hebrew, Yahweh. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus quotes Daniel 7.13, the prophecy of Messiah. And everyone there would have known that. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. And how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. I've got to point out one thing in here. In this heated moment of, of high drama, as Jesus confesses to the one thing he was guilty of, and that was being Messiah. And he confesses this, and the chief priest tears his clothes, his keton, his keton, that's the Greek word there. <coughs> it means garment or clothing or robe. He, he tore his robe, the high priest's robe. Caiaphas. Caiaphas, by tearing his ketone, by ripping his robe, inadvertently signals something dramatic here. Something stunning. Because the high priestly robe is only torn on one occasion, and that is when the high priest died. What is he signaling? The death of the priesthood. In that moment, gang, I believe the Levitical priesthood was dead. To be replaced for all time by the eternal high priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ. And even as the temple veil was rent in two from top to bottom, signaling an end to the dividing wall and the daily sacrifices for sin, so the high priesthood here, as he rent that robe, is dead and unnecessary. Because we now have one high priest. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? You Bible students know. He's that mysterious king, king of Salem, which would mean king of peace. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. He's the king of peace, king of righteousness. He comes out of Salem, Jerusalem, 
Back in the days of Abraham, Genesis 14, look up the story. Abraham comes back from a great war. And he is met on the way back by this King Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Interesting, isn't it? And Abraham offers him a tenth of the spoils of battle, an act of worship, tithing to this Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not of the earthly order of Aaron, not of the Levitical priesthood. He was a priest outside of that. And so the Hebrew writer says, like Melchizedek, Jesus is the high priest forever. He's not of the Aaronic priesthood, which ended with the ripping of the high priest's robes. No, he is a high priest forever after the Melchizedekian order. Melchizedek, an image, a picture, a type of Christ, if not Christ Himself. Now, I believe and can't prove it, but I believe Melchizedek was a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Meeting Abraham there, and I could get all into that, I'd love to. John chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. Well, how did Abraham see Jesus? Well, if he was Melchizedek, that'd be real easy, wouldn't it? (laughs) Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. By the way, what did the soldiers do with the garments of Jesus? John 19.23, the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus took His outer garments and they made four parts apart for every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece and they said to one another, let us not tear it but let's cast lots to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's from Psalm 22. But check it out. The word for tunic in the Greek is kiton. Same word used for the robe of the high priest. The high priest's katone was ripped, signaling the death of the priesthood. Jesus' katone was not divided, not ripped, not torn, but remained in one piece. Just as our high priest would be forever. His robe never to be torn. Verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Nazarene, but he denied it. I neither knew nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. Denial number one. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. Annoying little brat. But again, number two, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of him, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. Third denial, and immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. I need to point out to you in verse 71, the cursing there wasn't cursing like you would think of it. Peter wasn't cussing. 
He was putting Himself under a curse. As if to say, let my soul be damned if I am one of His. And the unclean rooster crowed in the night as Peter wept. I told you this chapter would begin in Bethany and would end in betrayal, but it's not the betrayal of Judas, it's the betrayal of Peter. And we need to understand there's a difference. It's a sad, gut-wrenching denial, betrayal by Peter. But Paul sums up the difference between the betrayal of Judas and the betrayal of Peter in one verse. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. That's the weeping of Peter. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's the betrayal of Judas. Judas would hang himself and die on a different tree even as his Lord died on the tree of Calvary. Peter would weep He would bemoan what happened. He would have an intense sorrow, but it was a sorrow that was according to God. And it would produce in him repentance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at You, when we think about how You walked through that night, the the composure, Lord Jesus, is absolutely stunning. The compassion, Lord Jesus, is overwhelming. As you watched Peter in betrayal, as you watched your men flee, as you were accused and lied about, as you were beaten and ridiculed, Lord Jesus, and knowing It was for the joy set before you. I think, Father, one of the most amazing thoughts that has ever come to me is that that joy is us. That we are the joy set before you, Lord Jesus. That you looked through the sufferings, through the trials, through the unjust and unfair treatment of this night, and you saw the other side. You saw that even here, 2,000 years later, we would be sitting in this barn redeemed by the blood of our Passover Lamb, saved by our great High Priest who entered in before us, who went into the most holy, perfect, heavenly tabernacle by His own blood, a blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Lord Jesus, we accept Your blood tonight, Your blood covering that cleanses us. We bow before Your authority as King and as High Priest. And we declare this night, Lord Jesus, by the power of Your Holy Spirit living in us, we will do all that we can to stand for You. And we are so thankful knowing that even if we're faithless, You remain faithful. Praise You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.